Welcome to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. This week's Grand Rounds comes to us from the University of Arizona College of Medicine and is titled, Update in Cardiocerebral Resuscitation. Here's Dr. Gordon Yui, Professor and Chief of Cardiology at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. So why are we talking about cardiovascular disease? As you know, it is the leading cause of death in almost all industrialized nations of the world. But unfortunately, the first sign of cardiovascular disease is often the last, as the first sign is often sudden cardiac death from cardiac arrest. According to the latest statistic, it's the leading cause of death in the United States. So accordingly, it really is a very significant public health problem. One of the most shocking pieces of statistic is that if you are a 40-year-old male, you have a one in eight chance of leaving this earth by sudden cardiac death. The average age of adults without a hospital cardiac arrest is in their mid-60s, so, you know, they're not always in their 90s. And the common causes, the cardiologist you know, look for long QT syndromes, catecholinergic polymorphic VTAC, arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, which, by the way, Dr. Frank Marcus is the world's authority on that entity. Early repolarization syndromes, Brigada, coronary spasm, anomalous coronary arteries. This is what frequently happens in kids, youngsters like the young boy from Ajo, 14-year-old, went out for football practice ran the length of the field and dropped dead. He had an anomalous coronary that went between his pulmonary artery and his aorta, and with exercise, it gets squeezed. Stress cardiomyopathy, which 90% of these occur in women, and the amount of stress, you might say, is trivial. Even a surprise birthday party of sometimes kicks this over myocarditis. But in adults, the majority appears to be secondary to coronary artery disease, often due to an acute coronary artery occlusion. Newsweek said this man was dead. Actually, he wasn't dead, uh, but Brian, 40-year-old salesman, Tucson collapsed in the shower after a swim. Off-duty female paramedic had been swimming, responded to the call. She told someone to call 911, get an AED, and she performed chest compression only CPR. The AED came, uh, he was shocked twice, uh, and then return of spontaneous circulation was brought to the emergency department in coma post-VF uh, arrest, and he was treated with therapeutic hypothermia. These patients are cooled to 33 degrees centigrade, plus or minus a degree. We use the Arctic Sun, which is a nice way of cooling it because you just set the temperature and then you can also do catheterization through this unit. This was his electrocardiogram and it certainly does not show an ST segment elevation myocardial infarction, but they did a echo in the emergency room, showed a little bit of uh, anterior hypokinesis. So Dr. Kern took him to the cardiac catheterization laboratory. So Carl knew where to put the wire. He got it across and opened up the vessel. Post-arrest, there's a post-arrest stunning that occurs in the myocardium. The EF dropped to 20%. He was slowly warmed uh, after 24 hours of therapeutic hypothermia, 
discharged five days later, business trip the following week, echo six weeks later, EF of 50% resumed competitive swimming months later, and Carl has a picture of him coming out of a rough water swim that is very impressive. He also has a picture of him and Carl at the heart ball, and Carl cleans up pretty well, you know, put a tux on him, and he, he, looks, uh, he looks real nice. But Newsweek said, luckily for him, he was on the campus of the University of Arizona, and that's because the campus likes to point out that the new CPR was developed uh, here. So the new CPR is cardiocell resuscitation for primary cardiac arrest, whereas guideline CPR is for secondary cardiac arrest. And cardiocell resuscitation has three components, a community component, which we instituted in uh, 2003, a pre-hospital component, which we instituted in 2003, and a hospital component statewide was uh, initiated by Dr. Barbro in 2007. I'm going to talk about the community and the pre-hospital component because often the battle for life and death in patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is won or lost in the field long before uh, they ever see a physician. So why cardiocell resuscitation? What was wrong with cardiopulmonary resuscitation? Well, in spite of standards in 1974, standards and guidelines in 1980, guidelines in 86, updates of guidelines in 92, in 2000, and 2005, the average survival rate for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest uh, averaged 7.6% and unchanged over the 30 years in spite of all of these, quote, guideline updates. Now, in my view, evaluating the overall survival rate may not be that helpful because there's a lot of people who have out-of-hospital cardiac arrest who have no chance of survival if they're not witnessed or they have a straight-line arrest. So how about those that have a chance of survival, those with ventricular fibrillation? And the published survival rate of patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest due to VF is 17.7% unchanged for the 23 years from 1980 to 2003. So why do we think the guidelines are not optimal? One of the reasons because they advocate the same approach for two distinctly different pathophysiologic conditions. Primary cardiac arrest, where the arterial blood is fully oxygenated at the time of the arrest, and respiratory arrest, where severe Oxygen deprivation results in oxygen desaturation, and eventually, five, six, seven minutes later, low blood pressure and secondary cardiac arrest. Those patients, the problem is respiratory and not primary. So for 20 years, we have known that early bystander CPR is critical to survival. In the 17th study published in 1991, the odd ratio, you were 4.5 times more likely to survive if you got bystander CPR early than late or not at all. So the cardiopulmonary resuscitation chain of survival is well known, but any chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And actually, 
it has several weak links because it has early in all of them. But the one I want to focus on today is early CPR. Because if you look at the national statistics, only one in four receive bystander CPR. That means 75% of people don't have a chance of surviving out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And a major reason for the low rate of bystander CPR was the ABCs, the requirement for mouth-to-mouth ventilation as the initial step in resuscitation. So the lack of bystander CPR was a major therapeutic problem. Most called 911 and then wait for their arrival. Such patients rarely survive. You might as well sign their death certificate. So it's a long story how we got interested in this uh, entity. If you're an academic physician and you want to make publications and research and professorship, don't pick something where there's already guidelines and standards because usually you're not going to improve on them. But over the years, we've looked at this. This is a a classic study that Carl wrote working with our colleagues in Purdue University. Uh, They found that when you pressed on the chest, if you didn't generate a very good pressure, you couldn't resuscitate the animal. If you pressed a little harder, you could resuscitate the animal, but they wouldn't survive for 24 hours. But if you got a good coronary perfusion pressure, they could resuscitate the animal and they would survive and, as far as we could tell, be neurologically intact the following day. Now, this has only been measured, as far as we know, in man once. Norm Paradis, what he did was he went to every cardiac arrest that they had, and he put in an arterial and venous line to measure this coronary perfusion pressure, and he found the same thing in man that we found in animals, that you needed a perfusion pressure of about 15 to get ROSE. But he had absolutely no survivors because nobody had a good coronary perfusion pressure. But the interesting thing to us, it wasn't the pH. I can't tell you how many animals we did in trying to uh, correct their bicarbonate. Didn't make any difference at all. In fact, everything I learned about CPR as an intern is wrong. Surprisingly, it was not the oxygen content as well, but it was the coronary perfusion pressure. Now, what's the coronary perfusion pressure? It's not taught in medical schools, but what it is is the difference between the aortic diastolic pressure and the right atrial pressure. As you're sitting here and every time your heart contracts, the pressure in the ventricle, in the myocardium, and in the aorta is the same, roughly. So you don't get any coronary perfusion during systole. But when the heart relaxes, aortic valve closes, then the pressure in the aorta is higher than that in the myocardium. So almost all coronary flow occurs in diastole. Interesting enough, the same thing happens in cardiac arrest. When you press on the chest, the pressure in the chest and the heart is all elevated. There's hardly any coronary flow. But when you release the release phase, the diastolic phase, the aortic valve closes The pressure in the aorta is higher, so coronary flow occurs in diastole. So we've actually been recommending chest compression-only CPR for 20 years, initially because it was better than doing nothing, 
and most people were doing nothing. Now, obviously, the coronary perfusion pressure somehow related to the cerebral perfusion pressure. Otherwise, the survivors would have not been neurologically intact. We surveyed almost 1,000 lay people. This was a, not a very sophisticated survey because these were all people that were serving the, receiving the Cyber Heart Center newsletter, so they knew a little bit about what we were doing. But we asked them, would you definitely do bystander CPR on a stranger if you had to do chest compression plus mouth-to-mouth? And only 15% said they would. So we said, how about if you had to do chest compression only? And they were four times more likely to do bystander CPR. So again, this is in the mid-1990s, and we're recommending bystander only because it's better than doing nothing. Between 1993 and 2002, we had six publications, a total of 169 non-paralyzed swine, each reporting no difference in survival between compression only and guideline CPR. But these publications had no influence on the guidelines. In fact, we were disappointed that the 2000 guidelines did not recommend compression only. But soon thereafter, Carl working with Doug Chamberlain and the colleagues over in England, did a study in Cardiff, Wales, where they were trying to teach CPR to lay people in a way that they could remember it better because the studies had shown that even if somebody is certified, you test them a year later and they didn't know what to do. So after they were certified, they said, here, show us what that you learned, and they did a videotape. And I guess, you know, when you're there teaching, you don't pay all this attention. But when they started looking at the videotapes, they found that when they, the last chest compression, lift the chin, close the nose, take a breath, make a seal, blow, repeat that, and then find out where to put their hand and start pressing on the chest, it was 16 seconds. We said, wait a minute. We said compression only... CPR was equivalent to ideal CPR, where, you know, we had the endotracheal tube in and a ambu bag, 15 compressions, two quick breaths at two seconds each. But that's not the way CPR had been done the last 40 years. The way it really been done, they've been pressing on the chest half the time. And that's why the survival was so bad. And again, when we looked at that, the survival was dramatically better with compression only than the realistic 2 to 15 CPR. So it took us another years of research to discover the importance of continuous chest compression to coronary perfusion, but it took one recording to learn the importance of uninterrupted chest compressions. I still don't know who sent me this tape, but somebody from Seattle sent me this tape, and it was a tape in the 1990s in Seattle, a woman's husband had collapsed. She called 911, and the dispatcher gave her dispatch-directed CPR. And it must have been an unusual day in Seattle because they didn't arrive for quite a while. So after a while, she went back to the phone and said, why is it every time I press on his chest, he opens his eyes? And every time I stop and breathe for him, he goes back to sleep. And we said, out of the mouth of babes, this woman in 10 minutes has learned 
the importance of chest perfusion to cerebral perfusion than we have in 20 years of research. Because what she was saying is, why is it when I press on his chest, he's not in coma? And when I stop, he goes back into a coma. We'll return for more from this session of Grand Browns Nation after a short break. <laughs> 